Yale Podcast Network. We're learning more and more that animals are not just shaped by their environments, but they play an active role in, in shaping their own evolutionary histories. And there are these really intriguing feedback loops between what an animal experiences of the world and how that ultimately shapes its own body and the entire species, really. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. One of the many obstacles to reckoning with global warming is the stubborn notion that humans are not powerful enough to affect the entire planet, writes our guest, journalist Ferris Jaber, in a recent New York Times opinion piece. In truth, he continues, we are far from the only creatures with such power, nor are we the first species to devastate the global ecosystem. The history of life on Earth is the history of life remaking Earth. Japer suggests that the time has come to revive an idea in biology known as the Gaia hypothesis. Coined in the 1970s, the Gaia hypothesis proposes that Earth itself, what we call the environment, is best understood not as a passive substrate or background to life, but as a life form in its own right. If the hypothesis is true, the moral stakes of human-caused climate change skyrocket. By fuming greenhouse gases, Jaber explains, we have not simply changed the climate. We have critically wounded a global life form and severely disrupted its biological rhythms. The Gaia hypothesis challenges us to rethink the definition of life and with it the process of evolution. To understand how sentient creatures have evolved on this planet, it suggests, is not only to grasp that animals, human and otherwise, are offshoots of an evolutionary tree. It's to see the tree itself as one element of a dynamic, interrelated organism. Ferris Jaber is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Scientific American. His work has been anthologized by the Best American Science and Nature Writing Series, and his stories have been featured in publications including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Laugham's Quarterly, Harper's, Outside, and Pacific Standard. He has written about how fish feel pain, how chickens perceive time, self-consciousness in elephants, the microbiology of winds and clouds, efforts to revive the American chestnut, Emily Dickinson's garden, the impact of moonlight on coral, and the history of humanity's attempts to harness bioluminescence. Jaber's writing weaves together exceptional curiosity and original questioning, expansive knowledge of the natural world, and wonder-inspiring descriptions of the Earth and its marvelous creatures. His debut book about the coevolution of Earth and life, Symphony of Earth, is forthcoming from Random House. Ferris Jaber, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. To start off with the idea that we just mentioned of Earth as a giant living entity, which is the topic of your very exciting and ambitious forthcoming book, will you explain what coevolution is and why it matters and tell us if Earth is a giant living entity? Yes. Um, Coevolution describes a process in which uh, two organisms' evolutionary trajectories intertwine or influence each other. Um, and with regard to the guy hypothesis, the idea there is to really acknowledge and investigate the intimate relationships between geology and biology, between the physical planet and what we refer to as living creatures. And the idea is that 
you know, not only is the environment shaping organisms, but organisms in turn are shaping the environments that they evolve in and the environments and creatures evolve together. Um, and so we can think of Earth as it's, it's a kind of living entity. It may not be exactly the same kind of life as a cell or a bird or a human, but it's a, it's a kind of life form. And it's that combination of environments and creatures evolving in tandem. I was shocked to learn, too, in your piece that there's no non-controversial definition of life among scientists. Yeah, it's been it's definitely one of the largest and most longstanding questions and problems in both philosophy and science. And there's been a lot of amazing thinkers that have tried to tackle that question. And I always found it frustrating, like in high school and college, when you open up a, a biology textbook and you don't get a clear, concise definition of life. You instead get a long list of characteristics. You know, living things grow, they reproduce, they evolve, etc. cetera. Um, and the more you think about it, uh, the more exceptions you find. There are There are living things that don't have some of the characteristics for life, at least for some periods of time, you know, organisms that can go into crazy states of hibernation and they're, they're not doing anything at all. They're just sort of inert lumps of matter, but we still think of them as living organisms. And then there are inanimate things like crystals, which have really intricate organized structures and they grow and they replicate themselves, but we don't think of crystals as alive. So what the Gaia hypothesis is, is targeting is partly this idea of Manichaean distinction between something passive that life feeds on and life. Right. And um, it's, you know, like many ideas in science, you can trace the guy hypothesis back a lot further um, than its debut. So, so James Lovelock started thinking about this in the late 60s, early 70s, and he developed the hypothesis with Lynn Margulis. Um, and he published his first book for the public, um, on guy in the 70s, and it, it really took off among the general public. But people had been sort of playing with these ideas and, and proposing similar things for quite a while before him. Um, there was a Russian scientist who's, who's not super well known in the West named um, Vladimir Vernadsky. And uh, he took the term biosphere, which had been coined by another scientist before him and really expanded it and started thinking about this sphere of the planet that contained all living organisms as really a part of the geology of the planet itself. Um, you know, the way that living creatures completely transform the atmosphere, the rocks, all the water on Earth. Um, and so he wrote about life being the most powerful geological force on the planet. And you know, when you start thinking about um, really trying to pin down the differences between the inanimate and the animate, that that supposed line becomes a lot blurrier um, and, and becomes less clear what we really mean by that in, in a non-colloquial sense. That's fascinating because in a lot of ways, the pushback that came in the 70s and the 80s after Lovelock and Margulis first came out with this phrase, Gaia Hypothesis, was mirrored by the pushback towards animal intelligence tests and the ideas like animals had emotions and so forth that were also put down as non-scientific often around that time and in, in, in the decades following. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are some intriguing links um, between kind of our reckoning with the sentience and intelligence of other creatures um, and this whole idea of Earth 
being alive in some meaningful sense. And I think that one of the strongest bridges might be this question of agency, um, because I think that we're learning more and more that animals are, and other creatures are not just shaped by their environments, but they all play an active role in, in shaping their own evolutionary histories. And there are these really intriguing feedback loops between what an animal experiences of the world and how that ultimately shapes its own body and uh, the, the entire species, really. And there are very, very similar questions um, being asked in thinking about Gaia and, and what it means for a planet to be alive, because you, you come to see the creatures and the environments forming these intricate systems in which they're stabilizing themselves and regulating themselves for certain periods of time uh, throughout Earth's history. You know, nothing is permanent. There, there have really been so many different Earths throughout Earth's history. The, the early microbial Earth is vastly different from the Carboniferous Earth, vastly different from what we have today. But in each of those sort of epochs, you see creatures and their environments working towards certain kinds of stability and balance, and then something will happen to disrupt it. Sometimes the creatures themselves cause a huge disruption. Um, but there's this, there's this growing awareness, I think, in many different fields of science of agency, how creatures themselves and their environments um, actively uh, stabilize and regulate each other and create, they, you know, they don't just inhabit their conditions, they create their conditions. You touch on those ideas in a fascinating feature for the New York Times magazine on Darwin's idea of sexual selection and the ornithologist who champions it in his book, The Evolution of Beauty, named Richard Prum. Can you take us into that story? So there are a lot of animals that have outlandish sexual ornaments. Um, the peacock's tail is the classic example, but there are lots of birds, fish, amphibians, reptiles, insects, and other creatures with bold and brilliant colors or iridescence or crazy long feathers, inflatable pouches. And there are also these ridiculously elaborate courtship dances and other mating rituals. Um, and these ornaments present something of a conundrum because they often hinder survival. You know, they, they require a lot of calories and maintenance. They can be awkward and burdensome. They can slow animals down. They can even attract predators. So why would animals evolve them? And for a long time, biologists have explained it by saying that ornaments are basically a code. They're advertising. They're, they're supposed to signal something about an animal's strength and health and vigor, and therefore help animals make better reproductive choices. Um, but it turns out if you look closely at Darwin's early writings, he had a different idea. Um, he, he originally conceived several different forms of selection. There was natural selection when the environment shapes living organisms, molding them to its demands. There was artificial selection where humans acted in place of the environment. And then there was sexual selection, um, which was when female animals shaped the bodies and behaviors of males, typically according to their desires and preferences. And if you look at Darwin's writing, it's, it's pretty clear that he's indicating that he really believes that animals have a subjective experience of the world and a genuine kind of aesthetic taste. And that these arbitrary preferences could create these outlandish anatomical features and, and courtship rituals. So in his mind, beauty and fitness did not have to be linked. And although that idea was never completely ignored or forgotten, I think it's fair to say um, that a different version was um, preferred in, in biology. And that's the idea that um, sexual ornaments convey useful information. And in the past couple decades, 
there's been increasing evidence that Darwin was right in at least some ways. You know, often beauty is not linked to survival or fitness. And sometimes beauty in the animal kingdom is the result of arbitrary preferences. Other times it emerges from environmental or physiological constraints that are also unrelated to survival. And then other times, beauty and survival, the arbitrary and the pragmatic, can collide and shape each other. So um, I had heard about uh, the Yale ornithologist Richard Prum, um, who is one of the staunchest supporters of Darwin's original articulation of sexual selection. And he seemed like a really interesting person and scientist. And I thought perhaps um, writing about him would be a really good way to tell this larger story of this ongoing discussion about sexual selection, the nature of beauty. Um, and so in addition to spending some time with him and going birding with him, I also visited other researchers in the field of sexual selection. And I kind of tried to broaden the story out a bit um, beyond just Crumb's research in laboratory to, to look at, you know, what, what is the latest thinking about what beauty is in the animal kingdom and, and where it comes from. Your description of Richard Prum reminds me that many of your pieces focus on not just these remarkable natural phenomena and animals and plants and et cetera relationships, but on the scientists and the people who are studying them, who often, it seems, as a theme across many of your pieces, are what uh, the writer David Abrams might call, quote unquote, edge people or people who are you know respected in their field, but in some ways at the periphery in that they have original not mainstream viewpoints or theories that they're pursuing and that over time, in many cases, have become become much more mainstream. And I'm curious, what is it that draws you to certain human subjects when you're pursuing a story about natural subjects like this one? I think I'm, I'm really drawn to passion and boldness. Um, you know, I think that science depends on a kind of skepticism and caution and I think in science, like in any field, there's a lot of pressure to be accepted by your peers. And so if somebody is willing to take a stand against the mainstream or to propose an idea that isn't what is typically accepted, that's, that's a pretty big risk. That, that takes a lot of boldness. Uh, and I'm definitely attracted to that. And I think the danger as a, a science writer is that you know, you want to distinguish between the truly fringe and and unsupported, you know, arguments that are just really out there and really don't have a lot of backing behind them versus somebody who maybe is a little bit ahead of their time or, or is a little bit more willing to take those risks um, to talk about something that might get them some backlash, but that actually makes a lot of sense, you know, and, and that they're sort of a little bit ahead in the sense that there are some of their peers who are slowly warming up to that idea, but they're they're more willing to, to leap out there and, and say, no, this is the way it is um, right now, as opposed to waiting for the, you know, the mountain of evidence that most scientists would be more comfortable with. How do you go about making that, that call? I'm sure that it varies on a case-by-case basis, but, but it requires, I mean, a profound level of, of disentangling probably of the literature with a broader sociological understanding and historical understanding of the questions at stake. And you can feel this about your writing that I think that's what's, to me, that's what's so thrilling about it. It's not like you just take the latest piece on such and such phenomena and distill it into digestible English. You really disentangle these the debates that it provokes and and what the stakes are 
not only within science, but within, within our understanding of nature. Thank you. Well, thank you for saying so. I, I think that, um, I mean, in my earlier, you know, in, in, my, in childhood, nature and science was a huge passion for me right from the very beginning, and so was reading and writing. I was sort of equally obsessed with novels and National Geographic, you know, with, with looking at bugs and plants and just reading as many books as I could get my hands on. And um, by the time I got to college, I actually thought I was going to pursue research science of some kind and maybe write as a hobby because I didn't know a single professional writer and I didn't know how one would make a living doing that. I just, I had no, you know, firsthand knowledge of it. It just seems kind of crazy to me. Um, But over the course of college, I kind of decided that I wasn't really suited to the day-to-day work of a scientist and I think part of the reason is that I was kind of afraid of, of getting siloed or isolated in certain ways. I I think Mary Roach has used the phrase um, serial obsessionist before, which I really like. And I feel like I relate to that. I feel like I become obsessed with something for a certain period of time, and then I'm kind of ready to move on to a new project. And often those obsessions will be tied together by larger themes and ideas, but I don't want to spend my entire life working on one very specific thing. Um, And I think that's part of the privilege of being a science writer as opposed to a scientist. It's kind of this freedom to move around a bit more intellectually. I think that it it kind of, you know, science writing, science kind of demands an intense focus, whereas science writing kind of lends you this broadness in a way. So you take, you can take shallower dives into a much broader range of topics. And I, I feel, you know, one of the immense privileges of my job is that I can And I am able to talk to incredibly brilliant people all the time, you know, every day, so many generous scientists who are willing to spend hours with me on the phone, um, letting me ask questions until I finally understand what they're talking about. You know, so I I just have sort of a very basic grounding in biology and the life sciences, but that allows me to go to specialists in many different fields and really engage with them and have these um, interesting conversations and just keep asking them questions about their papers and their work until I feel like I've really reached a level of understanding where then I I can go and and then um, write something for the general public. And I totally agree. I think that too much science writing stops at the level of translation. And there's a great service in in translating science into something that's lucid and understandable. But I think that really good science writing, really good nonfiction writing has to go way beyond that. You know, ideally, in addition to making something lucid and clear, you want to have some sort of original thinking, some sort of original contribution. You know, what is what are you going to contribute to the ongoing discussion about this subject? And then also for me personally, like ideally the writer is, is spending some time and effort on the sentence level, trying to, you know, not just saying something interesting, but trying to say it in an interesting way. You know, saying something that's both true and beautiful. For me, that's kind of the ideal is this marriage of lyricism and logic, of truth and beauty, um, of accuracy and aesthetic. Mm, well, that, that really comes across in your writing. It's interesting to hear you say that and to have talked earlier about the topic of coevolution specifically, because both the scope of your work and to write in the way that you just described clearly requires a deep understanding of n- more than just any single field, as one might get in academia in some situations, which seems to me like one of the ways in which Science writing is uh, extraordinarily important, not just to the public and to raising you know, ethical questions and all these other things, but to actually 
fundamentally advancing science itself. And one idea that we had chatted about a bit over email before this is whether you think that science writing and scientific discovery have co-evolved in a similar way as, you know, geology and biology, as you said. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Do you do you see science writing as bridging fields and being a big picture synthesis potentially, and therefore not just translating science, but moving science forward? Yeah, I think it I think that um on its best days, that's definitely what science writing can do. And I think that you know, writing for the public about science and the process of science itself have absolutely influenced each other um, throughout history and inevitably so. And I think that um, it probably started, I mean, it would be interesting to really do like a, a deep dive on the ancient, ancient history of science writing, pushing it back as far back as we could go. But I, I would imagine that it started with scientists themselves, you know, um, academics, inventors, uh, explorers who wanted to get their work out there um, beyond just the, you know, super academic publications that they were primarily writing for. Um, and there's there's always been those scientists who, in addition to being brilliant scientific minds, also have a real knack for writing or communication or expression of some kind. And I think they just um, are naturally drawn to it and feel compelled um, to do that. And that's, you know, that's truly astounding. And I think that some of the the greatest contributions have come from those kind of hybrid individuals. Um, and I think that science writing definitely can be um, more, can be broader and more bridge connecting than any one scientific field or scientist can themselves, because I really do think that the, the you know, the day-to-day process of science demands this intense focus and specificity. And it just takes so much effort. It's a lifelong process to understand like even one species or one subject really deeply. Um, and, you know, so the, the science writer then can come in and, and can kind of look at a bunch of different pieces and, and start to see where there might be connections. Um, and that's really how my book got started is, you know, at least five to six years ago, I started seeing what I thought were connections between a lot of individual studies that were coming out. And each of those studies was in some way related to the power of living creatures to change the planet in some profound way, you know, whether it was forests conjuring rain or whether it was microbes um, influencing geological processes, transforming rocks from one form to another, making metals and minerals. And to me that all these different studies from geology, biology, atmospheric science, ocean science seem to be intimate connected and connected by this idea of Gaia and the living planet, but nobody was talking about them cohesively. Nobody was pulling those threads together. Um, And I think that um, part of the reason for that is that, you know, it it just, it takes a a sort of a certain privileged state of mind and position and mindset to do that, to be able to have the time and the desire and the energy and will to to draw all those threads together and, and to weave that kind of tapestry uh, as opposed to saying, no, I'm, I've chosen honeybees, you know, or I've chosen um, molecular biology, and that's kind of what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And so in addition to doing all of these macro explorations in the literature and the synthesizing, you're very much on the ground for some of your pieces, 
trailing these scientists, doing your own field research, so to speak, on them. And there's one particular example that we were hoping you would walk us through. A fascinating article published a couple of years ago in The Times profiling a researcher named Khan Slobodchikov. And we were wondering if you could introduce us to that story and, and how you came to it. Yes, um, Konslobochkov has studied prairie dogs for more than 30 years, and in, in particular, their communication. And I'd heard about his work on podcasts and in some news stories. And at the time, I was searching for a way to write about animal communication and the question of the nature and origins of language. And I was looking for a character and narrative to ground the story. And that's often a, a tactic I will take is, you know, that there will be a large scientific or philosophical question that I want to tackle, that I want to explore. And I really need a way to make that feature work on the page. And often a really good way to do that is to find an interesting character and tell their story and sew their story together with the larger story, um, the larger intellectual story that I'm exploring. So no one had done a full-length feature on Khan. And the more I read about the details of his work, the more fascinating it became to me and the more it seemed to merit a really in-depth exploration. Because if he's right, then he has discovered something unprecedented and, and truly profound. He believes that prairie dogs have a genuine form of language. According to his studies, the prairie dogs have distinct warning calls for different predators, so for humans, hawks, coyotes, and so on. And they can combine their unique vocalizations to create descriptive phrases, such as fast brown coyote or tall, slow human. And if you show them something they've never seen before, like a cardboard cutout of a strange animal, they will even form a unique phrase in the moment to describe what they're seeing. So the possibility that such an unassuming creature and, and one that many regard as a pest might have such linguistic sophistication seemed to me like a perfect way to explore the nature of language, especially because we're so used to hearing about it in the context of chimpanzees or dolphins or parrots, but not rodents running around in the dirt. So I went to visit Khan in Arizona, um, where he's he's worked for several decades. We actually went around to see what what are now really his former research sites, because prairie dogs. It used to be that he could easily find many large prairie dog colonies really close to his uh, university office, but they're sort of been under assault by several different forces. First of all, there's the the plague, which they're the prairie dogs and other rodents are very susceptible to bionic plague and it's been wiping them out. But they're also regarded by farmers and others as pests and something to just be exterminated. And there's essentially no laws protecting them. So it's very easy to, to poison them in mass or, or to kill them in other ways. So their numbers have really been dwindling. And it used to be that North America was absolutely covered in both bison and prairie dogs. And and together, they were kind of part of this incredible grassland ecosystem. Prairie dogs literally aerate the skin of North America. They dig these, these intricate burrows and holes, which allow water and nutrients and oxygen to cycle through and, and, and keep everything flowing in the ecosystem. But now they've really been reduced to certain sects and tracts of protected land here and there. But yeah, I went to um, to see Khan and spend some time with him because, you know, whenever I can see something firsthand, it immensely and immediately improves my writing because I can now draw on my own sensory experiences and my own memories of what happened. And I think that even if I'm writing about something 
you know, as abstract as consciousness or language, there still needs to be human or otherwise characters on the page because that's that's how we get into stories. We need some sort of character and we need some sort of action and consequence. And it doesn't always have to be a person. In the in the beauty story we're talking about, I, I opened with a scene about a, a bird doing a courtship ritual. And I really tried to write in as you know as, as a detailed way as possible to really make that bird and and its um, incredible beauty and dance and music be sort of opening characters for the piece, even if I was then going to go into a, a profile and character sketch of a human scientist. I also, I also wanted the animals and their evolution to take center stage. So I'm always searching for compelling characters, you know, whether they are human or animal or otherwise. And in the case of the, the Prairie Dog article, you wove recordings of these predator calls into the piece and one of them was the human call, and we're actually just going to play it so listeners can hear it. This is the Prairie Dog Call for Human, published in the New York Times, courtesy of scientist Khan Slobodchikov. What was it like to hear that in person? So I remember the first thing I was struck by is just how bird-like the calls were. Um, supposedly, prairie dogs got their name because they sounded to early explorers like little yipping dogs. But to me, they sounded so much like birds. And I remember um, when I encountered vast fields of them in Colorado where they're protected, it, it sounded like seagulls on the beach in, in the distance because there were just you know hundreds of them sort of chirping at the same time. But on a deeper level, um, it was just kind of startling and eerie how keenly aware the prairie dogs were of our presence. You know, we tried to approach the colony slowly and quietly, but they knew we were there so quickly. And they were putting so much energy um, into noticing us and sounding the alarm. So you just can't help but wonder how much in you know what what are these what does all that noise mean? Does it mean something like just how much information might be encoded in those those high pitched chirps? You write in the piece too about the controversy around using the term language to describe these vocalizations and what kind of criteria a vocalization would have to evince, like be it referring to an object in the environment, syntax, displacement, which referring to an object that's not physically there, a whole repertoire of criteria formalized by this guy Charles Hockett, who you talk about, that still governs some inquiry into other animals' language capacity. What is your sense of the state of the controversy now and what's at stake in this long debate over whether to call animal communication systems speech? Yeah, it's interesting. I I had an interesting conversation with this uh, um, about this with Irene Pepperberg, who has done the amazing studies on Alex the African gray parrot and and now some more um, gray parrots. And you know, we were talking about how it seems like there have been some real peaks and valleys in the history and popularity of animal communication studies and and this whole question of the possibility of animal language and breaking the interspecies language barrier. Um, it, it seems like there have been periods of time where there are a whole bunch of documentaries and books really fixated on this question, and then it kind of simmers for a while, and then, and then it'll become really popular again. Um, and I think that language, is, you know, it's similar to terms like 
life, consciousness, intelligence, where it's been really difficult to come up with a, a sort of concise and universally accepted definition. And you, you often will encounter, in, in lieu of that, you know, long lists of qualities, of characteristics, um, you know, it looks like this, this, and this. And with human language in particular, because of its complexity, it's so easy to break it apart into dozens and dozens of different features and then demand that another species demonstrate all of those same features in order to earn the moniker of, of having language. And I think that, personally, I think that's not the right way to go about it. For me, it's, I think we have to try to find what the essence of language is. You know, we need to re- reduce it down, boil it down. And if, if the basis of it all really comes down to sound or another kind of symbol, you know, it could be a gesture, it could be pictorial, some sort of something that has a meaning assigned to it, you know, sort of being the base unit of language, then for me, prairie dogs and a lot of other creatures have at at the very least demonstrated that, you know, most fundamental layer of language. They are using symbols in various ways. And, you know, we can take it all the way to the level of fascinating studies on captive dolphins, where they literally can assign whistle names to objects. They have a unique whistle for basketball or for volleyball that's floating in the pool with them. And there are also studies suggesting that wild dolphins have whistle names for each other, that they that they have unique signature whistles that they use to identify one another. For me, right now, I'm not, I don't know if we're really in, in a peak or a valley right now. It's kind of hard to tell because there's just so much going on um, politically that just overshadows everything else. And there's so much going on with the environment that I think can overshadow these other really fascinating questions about consciousness and, and intelligence and language. But uh, I've talked to researchers who are very comfortable, like Khan, you know, using the word language and think it's absolutely justified. But I still think the vast majority of animal experts and biologists are not comfortable using the word language. There's no definitive answer, but there are sort of general agreements about certain aspects. And I think one of those general agreements is that only humans have what people call genuine or true or full-fledged language. And other animals only have, quote, language-like abilities or uh, language-like features. So that's from talking to dozens and dozens of researchers who have studied animal communication. I, I get this sense of awe, the sophistication of the communication, but still a lot of trepidation about taking that leap that Khan did and, and fully embracing the term language to describe it. That's fascinating because you wrote a, a wonderful piece on a tangentially related note for the New York Times a while back, which was a letter of recommendation for the app iNaturalist, which for anyone who doesn't know is a citizen science app, which is a combination of artificial learning and an online community of scientists and everyday citizens who observe, identify, and record natural organisms. And there are millions and millions of photos that have been identified on there. But what you point out in this piece is that many of us who aren't naturalists don't have the language, in fact, for much of the natural world around us. And you you wrote this piece recommending the power of learning the names of wild things and how this can change the way that we look at nature and the way we think about it. And I'm curious if you could tell us why it's so important to you in your words to learn the names of our wild neighbors. I think we need to recognize that other creatures are individuals too, and not just dynamic creatures like animals, but more sedentary or at least 
seemingly sedentary creatures like plants and fungi. They all have their own lives, their own goals, challenges, memories. And if we don't know the names of the life all around us, it's too easy to lump it all together as nature or the environment. Um, but when you make the effort to learn the names of the garden plants, the weeds, the insects and birds in your neighborhood or even in your own backyard, you start to recognize that they have individual identities and you start to wonder about their stories. You know, who are they really? Where did they come from? How do they end up here together? What are they really like? I think that the name of a creature generates curiosity and questions and it opens up a whole world of knowledge that you didn't you weren't necessarily aware of before. It, it expands our world um, beyond not just our own personal concerns, but also beyond the human as well. It makes me think of these calls on the part of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to quote-unquote colonize space. And we, we hear, of, for example, Musk has proposed, he proposed this earlier this year, a moon landing and the construction of satellites that would house up to a trillion people and respond to the fact that we've exhausted Earth's resources by just jumping ship. And I think, I mean, there are a number of reasons that I think the, the ideas you've spoken about with regard to the Gaia hypothesis make those proposals tragic and poignant. But it strikes me listening to you talk about the power of language with regard to nature. The use of the verb colonize with regard to space is kind of chilling in the sense that it presupposes, like in, this, in the sense of space, we have a nowhere, as far as we know. We don't have any other humans. We don't have any, any organisms that we'd be disrupting. But, of course, in the past, colonization has this sordid history of referring to the destruction of human communities, all sorts of pain in the service of establishing an alien presence. And I just wonder how you think about these this new kind of space age in relation to these topics you're exploring? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think um, especially where we are right now in the very thick of the Anthropocene and trying to reckon with everything that we've done to the planet, you know, the, this question comes up now and then of how dare we or how can we afford to focus on anything but that? You know, it, you know how can we be thinking about going to the moon or sending robots to Mars when clearly we should be devoting all resources to restoring the ecosystems that we've devastated here on, on Earth. And it, it's something I've struggled with, and I think a lot of science writers and scientists have struggled with, because at first, there's something about that logic that is kind of difficult to dismiss. You know, I mean, we, we are in the midst of the most intense crisis we've ever faced as a species and a civilization. And maybe we should be devoting all the all resources to that. But at the same time, I don't think you can, you can't tell the eight-year-old who's enchanted by Jupiter and the solar system and, and space robots not to be enchanted by that. You can't tell, you know, the, the space scientists that, that have devoted their careers to working on that, that they have to drop everything and, and change um, their, their entire uh, careers and research focuses. And Elon Musk, you know, <laughs> his particular visions are kind of a great example of like the the Silicon Valley fanboy kind of ludicrous, you know, just really detached, extremely idealistic way of thinking about it all. And what I found particularly ironic and chilling, like you said about about that particular proposal, is that 
like he's he's proposing recreating what we already have and have already had here on this planet, like a, a giant rotating thing in space that has the ability to support animals and ecosystems. Well, that's basically a description of Earth, you know, and um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's just a little it's a little too much to accept that that in particular. But yeah, I just think that I always come back to this idea of just kind of needing it all and then just needing a diversity of approaches and perspectives. And we've seen recently a spate of articles and books that are really focused on the the need for panic and fear, the genuine need for panic and fear, because there are real reasons to feel that way. But I think that there's a danger in stopping there, um, because fear is, can be very paralyzing. And if, and, and there's also this, I think, this danger of um, almost relishing the panic and, and, and the misery of it all, almost like a kind of like climate disaster pornography or something like that, where, you know, I think it's really dangerous to dwell in that space. And I think we, what we need in addition to, we absolutely have to recognize and reckon with what we've done and the terror of it all, but we also need bravery and hope and inspiration. And I'm, so I'm not going to, you know, dismiss or reject a source of inspiration or hope wherever that might be, you know, and, and if, if somebody gets that from thinking about um, another mission to the moon or or um, sending more robots to explore the other planets, then I think that's great. And I think we need that right now. One of the things that uh, inspires awe in me regularly is looking at your Twitter feed, which is one of my all-time favorite Twitter feeds, um, as I told you uh, in our correspondence before. And I'm just going to read one example of one of your tweets here. We see clouds so often and in such abundance, it's easy to forget what marvels they really are. A cloud is a levitating lake, typically weighing more than several blue whales. A cloud is a woolly fluid, a shifting shapeliness. A cloud is Earth seeing its own breath. And I thought that was just one of many examples of, in short form on your Twitter, but also in long form in your pieces, in which you really humble and awe and induce wonder in the reader and introduce them to elements of their world that they might not even know of or have ever thought of in in that way. And I'm curious, how do you think about going about that, both in short form via Twitter, but also in long form in shaping readers' perspectives via your longer pieces? Yeah, with regard to Twitter, my my relationship with Twitter has changed so much over time. I think I've been on there for almost 10 years now. Um, And when I first joined, I was kind of bewildered. I really didn't know what to make of it or, or what to do with it. And then I think I went through a period of time where I was much too preoccupied with it. Um, I was spending way too much time on Twitter. I was, you know, tweeting many times a day. And then something shifted. I think, you know, I, I, the communities on Twitter became larger and more fragmented. And it became, in, in my opinion, my experience, much more difficult to have meaningful conversations and interactions on Twitter. And I started to tweet a lot less frequently. Um, and in the past few years, I've tried to think of Twitter as kind of a canvas or, or a creative space. I've tried to be a lot more deliberate and selective about what I tweet and how I tweet. And it's, it's kind of a, it's a unique space where I can kind of experiment with um, short form, with um, interesting, potentially interesting ways of sharing facts about the natural world or doing little prose poems or super what, you know, short one sentence, two sentence um, short stories. 
And uh, I, I, I'm trying, a lot of people, it seems these days will just sort of tweet whatever, but they'll have their tweets auto self-destruct. So there's kind of this liberation of, well, it doesn't really matter because it's, it's going to go away. And I'm trying to do something kind of the opposite of that, where I, I kind of want to make something that I, I do feel good about preserving, something I do, I do want to leave behind. And so I'm trying to more consciously curate um, in that way. And I, it really is, it's really interesting to see the power of Twitter and social media to um, take just a single fact about the natural world and turn it into a fascinating conversation and participatory interactive thread. For me, the the one time that really happened in a big way was with this um, tweet about the secret life of chalk, um, how basically the White Cliffs of Dover and other um, large deposits of limestone or, or chalk are actually composed of the ancient tiny skeletons of single-celled ocean plankton that have collected, um, you know, their, their skeletons sink to the bottom of the ocean floor and they collect in these mats over the eons and then they solidify and become part of the Earth's crust and they get uplifted and they turn into something like the White Cliffs of Dover. So if you take a sample from the, from the Dover Cliffs and you look at it under a really powerful microscope, you can still see the pieces and fragments of these little spherical um, cells are called coccolithophores. And I just, I mean, it was, I just tweeted it out. It's something I've been doing for years, but for some reason that tweet really caught on and it was, you know, retweeted and liked, you know, tens of thousands of time. And it just, it, it turned into this conversation where people were sharing all kinds of um, cool artwork related to nature, um, uh, other pictures of uh, sand and rocks and microfossils under, underneath microscopes. People were asking questions about coccolithophores and plankton and, and their power to produce oxygen and, and change the planet. Um, and so that was really inspiring to me and kind of um, gave me, you know, it was, it was, it was good fuel for, for keeping that up because embarrassingly, some of those threads I do do take a, quite a bit of research because I don't want to tweet out something unless I'm sure that first of all it's true because there's so much misinformation out there um, and also I want to find an, an, an hopefully interesting a, a way of saying it and I guess I take a, a somewhat similar approach in longer pieces where it's it's you know for me lyricism is just what I love the most in terms of prose style a lot of my favorite fiction and nonfiction authors um, are very lyrical. And it's, it's a style that I've always tried to emulate. And it's extremely taxing to sustain that kind of lyricism throughout an, a really long piece. And I found that it, it, it often works best for me when I have something very um, sensual or sensory based to describe, you know, where I've, I've experienced something or witnessed something, or at the very least, I've talked to somebody who has experienced something and I can sort of reverse engineer their experiences, or I can look at a video or pictures and, and, and try to just to, you know, evoke something. And um, for me, it's like to create passages about the natural world, which are both um, true and poetic at the same time. So they're, they're both informed by deep research. You know, you've really looked at the literature. You've really tried to understand what's happening here. 
scientifically, biologically, but then you're trying to express it in a way that is not simply matter of fact and clear, but, but transcends that to create an emotional experience or resonance in the reader to evoke that sense of wonder and awe that we all experience in our, in our own interactions with nature now and then, but to, to make that happen on the page. Um, and actually, the, somebody who I think has done this in a way I've never seen done before um, is uh, Richard Powers in The Overstory, um, this magnificent new novel that everyone's been talking about, which is, for me, it's kind of like Cloud Atlas um, meets trees. You know, it's like um, there's a series of characters, each of whom has a profound connection to trees in some ways. And trees themselves and plants are characters in, in the book. And it's as somebody who's kind of followed the research on plant communication and intelligence for a long time, it's really clear to me that he spent a lot of time immersed in that literature because he's making very obvious references to it. And he's really tried to get a handle on how trees and plants actually work, how they communicate with each other, how they use these incredible um, aerial chemical messages and these underground networks of root and fungi to exchange nutrients and water and um, chemical messages about what's happening in their environments. And he just takes it to a whole new level in, in terms of making literature and artwork um, out of that science, or at the very least informed by that science. And even though that's a novel and it's a different medium from what I work in, I think for me, there's just so many parallels. Um, and I was just, I was just blown away by that book. And I, I just, I tell everybody about it these days because I was just, I'm just so in love with it. But um, <laughs> it is it, it's really interesting to me as a science writer to read that um, because I think I really do think there are some really strong parallels between the process that he must have gone through to write that and what makes really good science writing um, in magazine form or, or in long form for the general public. That's fascinating. I'm midway through reading the overstory now and feel very enthralled similarly to you. And I was thinking as you were speaking about one scene that I'd read recently in which um, it's a short excerpt in which the, a prisoner, a character's prisoner is in a cell looking at a wood desk, and he's in this weatherless, seasonless room and is looking at the grain of the wood um, in front of him and thinking about how if he were able to read it, he'd be able to see, you know, which years were a good year and a bad year and how what what growth occurred and, you know, when there were fires. And there, there's so much about the seasonality in the world can be deduced from this, you know, remnant of an organism that created this magnificent pattern and object itself on its own accord from sunlight and what a, you know, what a spectacular thing. And um, I haven't been able to look at a desk the same way ever since then. But it, it has the same effect on me as many of your tweets do, like like the chalk tweet, for instance, that you mentioned, whereby it zooms in on a particular creature and then permanently transforms how I see it from there on out in a way that really does induce awe and make you feel small in, in, in the best sense. Um, on, on this topic, um, as we wrap up of books that you'd recommend. We'd like to ask every listener as we close the podcast to recommend several books that have influenced how they think about animals in the natural world. So we'll certainly count the overstory as one of those. Um, but we're curious, what other books come to mind for you that you would that you would recommend to us? Yeah, um, several, a couple books and a couple films come to mind. Um, uh, there is a book called um, an Elemental Thing by Elliot Weinberger. Um, and there's two essays. It's, a, it's sort of a, a series of experimental, innovative essays or, or vignettes. And he has this really intriguing style where he 
um, kind of creates a pastiche. He'll pull, you know, excerpts and snippets from all kinds of historical documents in addition to his own prose and kind of weave it together in this really interesting mosaic. And there's two essays in there in particular, one about tigers and one about the rhinoceros. And it's really about um, the human relationship to these animals um, throughout history. And I guess for me as a science writer, it it just, um, it really influenced how I think about writing about animals. You know, this, like, let's say you want to write about the rhinoceros, our relationship to the rhinoceros. Okay, well, let's, Let's look at the entire history of that and selectively pull out fragments and pieces and and put them together in a way um, that that really beautifully shows us something about, reveals something about a relationship to that creature without necessarily having to come out and explicitly state it um, in a more matter-of-fact way. And um, somewhat similarly, another book that I love is Leviathan or the Whale by Philip Hoare, where he weaves together um, literary biography, literary analysis, um, science writing about whales, personal reflections. And it's this kind of melange and blend that I really admire and aspire to, where it doesn't have to be just one thing or the other. Um, writing about animals or science writing can can combine all of those things. Um, and then two movies that have really influenced me and really stayed with me. Um, there's Coco, A Talking Gorilla, which is this 1978 um, French documentary about um, the relationship between Coco and, and Penny Patterson. And then there's um, Blackfish, um, which was really... I, at the time, I was actually writing about both elephants and orcas and um, this, you know, the issues of having such large and sentient and intelligent creatures in captivity and something about all the raw footage that they used in that film, you know, just really um, reckoning with it in such an intense and visual way has just has stayed with me forever. And I tell a lot of people about that film, but it's it's a it's a film that a lot of people I know have a difficult time. They're not sure if they can watch it because it's just that powerful and that intense. Um, but I, I think I, I think if you're really interested in animals and this question of um, captivity and 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 the ethics of of keeping sentient creatures in captivity, I, I definitely recommend braving that film. Well, Ferris J. Burt, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We'd love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Ferris J. Burr's work. Thanks for listening.